Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, last but not least, my friends, you know that I like to give a formal introduction where I share all the things, all the accolades, all the credentials, um, you know, all of the experiences, because I want you all to know how wonderful and amazing our guest co-hosts are and insightful they are um, as they are sharing with us their wisdom. And so I'm going to do the same for my guest co-host today, Anton Gunn. And Anton is a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama and the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership. He has a master's degree in social work from the University of South Carolina, Go Gamecocks. That's where we, we met. That's where we went to school. He's older than I, though I do want to mention that, and was a resident fellow at Harvard. He is the best-selling author of The Presidential Principles and has been featured in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, BBC, NPR, and on Good Morning America. Recently, Anton was named by Fierce Healthcare as one of the most influential minority executives in healthcare. As an international speaker and consultant, he has worked with organizations like Mercedes-Benz, T-Mobile, Entrepreneurs Organization, KPMG, Verizon Wireless, Aetna, Blue Shield of California, American College of Surgeons, FINRA, and Boeing Company. From playing SEC football and being the first African-American in history elected to the South Carolina legislator from his district early in his career to now serving as CEO of 937 Strategy Group and serving on multiple boards, he has spent his life helping people build diverse, high-performing teams and world-class leadership culture. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen. I'm going to invite you, podcast community, to go to the chat, find those emojis, find whatever words of um, encouragement and gratitude to show appreciation to my friend, my guest co-host today, Anton Gunn, to welcome him. And if you're on LinkedIn Live, I encourage you to do the same in the comments. Um, it is so great to have you here. I am delighted that you said yes to our invitation. And I look forward to just jumping right in. Um, one of the things that I always ask our guest co-host to do before we jump into our dialogue is to share with us maybe one or two things about yourself that we would not know from reading your bio or maybe even looking through your LinkedIn profile. And so this is where you get to be really personal with us. Give us that connection point. Give us the tea, but help us to know you better, Anton. Welcome, my friend. Well, it's first of all, such a pleasure to be with you. And I'm I'm so inspired by you every day and the, just the professionalism, the experiences that you are creating for people and the work that you're doing. You know, you're a credit to the entire universe of, of DEI for what you do and how you show up every day. So I'm just grateful to be here, just excited. And I was excited to, to share this space. So if I had to share a couple things about me that, again, um, you would not know from reading my LinkedIn or, or reading anything in my bio, I'm going to share two things that one of them, a lot of people um, may understand, but don't don't really know. Uh, that is, I'm not a South Carolinian. I, I live in Columbia, South Carolina, but I'm from Virginia. I'm from Tidewater. I'm from 757. So if you don't know where that is, then you better figure it out and find out. But um, uh, being from uh, Tidewater and Hampton Roads literally is the core essence of who I am. It's a whole community of people who come from a lot of different places to, to build a life for themselves. And that's what I love to say about that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, this is what you wouldn't know. 
it is Women's History Month. Today is the 31st of March, and Women's History Month is really important, important, important month for me. Number one, it's my birth month. I was born on March 1st, and so uh, March is, is just the best month in the entire year. But why is Women's History Month so important to me is because I'm a former women's studies professor. A lot of people don't know that about me. You won't find it really in my bio that uh, in 2005, I taught in the women's studies program at the University of South Carolina. And I know some of you are making screw faces right now. How does a man teach in the women's studies program? Well, the number one reason why is that uh, I started my career as a community organizer and an activist. And what I know uh, paramount above almost anything is the role that women played in social change movements uh, throughout American history. So whether it's the civil rights movement, of course, the women's movement, women's suffrage movement, if you think about the founding of our nation and the revolution, I know the role that women played as leaders. And so the course that I taught was community activism from a feminist perspective. That was my course in um, the fall of 2005. And I really reflected on the women in my life that actually brought me into community organizing and social justice work. The first, I got to give a shout out to always, I give her credit, because without this woman, you would not have Anton Gunn as an activist and a, as a leader. Her name is Lenora Bush Reese. I uh, got her an MSW from the University of South Carolina, but she went to Columbia College, which is a great institution for training and developing women in leadership. And without her, I would have had my first job as an organizing activist. So in Women's History Month, uh, I'm glad to be the man who closes out Women's History Month because I really do believe in the power of women in leadership. And uh, if we have more women in leadership, we would actually have a much better world. And I fundamentally believe that. So let's find all those reactions, y'all, because they, he's certainly deserving of, of all the accolades right now for really highlighting the importance of the many, many contributions of women. And so I love that. And um, I, I feel that this is a great um, culmination to the month of March to have you because yes, while we've had women all month long, um, specifically um, Black women, um, and people know that I really love centering the voices of Black women. Um, I was trying to figure out how was I going to explain closing the month out with a black man, but you just brought it full circle. So I'm grateful for that. And we're grateful for all of your advocacy of, of women. And you know, hey, you are you are a dad. And so yeah. you have you have a daughter. Yes. And um, yeah, absolutely. So we we can't, you know, divest ourselves from seeing the importance and the value of really amplifying um, women's rights and um, all of the wonderful ways that women show up and contribute. So yeah. that's so awesome. I'm, I'm, I will say I'm a, I'm a girl dad wholeheartedly. And I'm married to my wife, Tiffany, of, of tw I'll be 23 years in May. And she's been an entrepreneur my, our entire lives together and selling real estate, building her own businesses, doing her own thing. And so, so again, I see the leadership in real time in my household. It, it, everything stays together in our lives because of my wife, Tiffany. And, and, and the hardest leadership experience I've had is trying to raise a strong young woman who has her own personality, very different from mine, very different from my wife. So it's been a leadership journey for me, just really uh, helping to give her the tools, the techniques and things that I think that she can show up as who she wants to be in the world, but most importantly, understand that she has every right to lead the same way any man has a right to lead. And so that's the blessing. And then you add my mom in there, retired educator and principal, uh, in Norfolk Public Schools for many, many years and who talks trash to me every day and make sure 
that she lets the world know that she raised four boys and uh and she and she did it in the most miraculous way possible and that is keeping us straight and off the off the the deep end of most things uh i'm just blessed by it so i've had an incredible community of women around me my wife my mother-in-law who's the greatest real estate agent in the history of south carolina so i can't escape the women in my life and would never try but i definitely want to give them their flowers and their accolades because uh it has actually helped me to be who i am today yeah, let's pass the offering plate. I mean, this is like way too good. We love the cash out, cash out, cash out, cash out. Cash out, cash out. That's amazing. We love it. Yes, I see yeah. Lanika, uh, Dr. Lanika placed into the chat. Come through, Miss Gunn. So giving also some credits to um your, to your wife, Tiffany. You. And we have similar stories and that my husband and I both are entrepreneurs. And so as I hear you talk about you, your, you know, your entrepreneur journey, your wife's entrepreneur journey, yeah. it is um it takes a special kind of relationship and support for each other when you both are on those entrepreneurial, you know, paths. And so I'm sure we can swap stories about that yeah. um, um in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you're also getting some love from the mention of Virginia. Well, I will say we do claim you in South Carolina. You know that. We do. Absolutely, yeah. we do. Yeah. But okay, yep. you are getting a little yep. bit of love there. That's right. Okay, so um, I'm sure that everyone is really interested in hearing more about your story. So how was it that you became advisor to pre um, President Barack Obama? Uh, yeah, that's a great, great place to start. And it really boils down to uh, two things is sheer determination. Um, so when I when I share this story, most people think that I have some massive political pedigree or that I went to the right institutions and I was well connected. No, you know, again, I grew up in a military family in Virginia, played football in college in South Carolina and was just a community organizer working on social justice issues in my community. So how does one get on the radar screen of a Barack Obama? Well, literally, I called his office 13 times until somebody called me back. And when they called me back, um, I sold some wolf tickets. I told them that if he wanted to become president of the United States, that he better hire me, otherwise he was gonna lose. And um, I didn't have any credentials to be able to, to say that, but I said it anyway. And they believed me. And next thing I know, two weeks later, I'm meeting with Barack Obama, uh, convincing him that he needs to hire me to help run his presidential campaign in South Carolina. And uh, you can read more details of the story in Time Magazine. There's a Time Magazine article. If you just Google Anton Gunn, Barack Obama, Time Magazine, the story will come up. But that's the story how I got in. Got in, And I got in when he was a, a early presidential candidate. He was 30 points down to Hillary Clinton. And most people couldn't pronounce his name and didn't know what he looked like. And so at that point in time, he was still a, a malleable candidate. He was a great uh, US Senator. But he was a malleable candidate and wanted to learn how to be successful. And I told him, I said, listen, I don't know a lot about politics, but what I do know is I know South Carolina, because for the previous 10 years, I've been to every corner of the state in every county meeting with community leaders. And so if you're a candidate who wants to connect with grassroots people, you need me involved. You need to listen to me. And from that day is when uh, I started to shape his whole presidential campaign in South Carolina, uh, primarily. And so we all know that if it wasn't for South Carolina, Barack Obama may have never won the Democratic nomination to be president. So I want to give flowers to everybody who worked on the team in South Carolina, Stacey Brayboy, Jeremy Byrd, Rick Wade, so many people um, who were in the streets who literally made it happen. And so that's that's how I got in. Now, it was some years later that I ended up going to work in his administration. 
and using my formal expertise in healthcare to actually help structure the outreach and enrollment on the Affordable Care Act. So I, I kind of was on the team who led the customer acquisition strategy to help 7 million Americans sign up for something that they desperately wanted, which was healthcare under the Affordable Care Act. And so um, I spent a lot of times helping them to come up with the right words. And, you know, as an inclusionist, you know, words work and words can hurt. And so um, I helped them to come up with the words that work to tell people about why they should go to healthcare.gov and get health insurance coverage and not use the words that hurt the way the Republicans and the political opposition was trying to use words that hurt. So that's the that's the long and short of the story. It just really is hard work. I, and most people, if you called somebody five times and they didn't return your phone call, you would probably quit. Or give up, yeah. <laughs> definitely wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't keep calling 13 times. And I did. And somebody called me back on time 13, which was how mm -hmm. I got the door open. That's awesome. So it paid off. Yeah, no, that is that is tremendous. Thanks so much for sharing that story. So um, there are some big headlines that I'm sure all of us are privy to just that that hit the the, the, you know, the media wavelength last night. Um, and so I we always find it appropriate to certainly bring some of those national mm -hmm. um, breaking news to our um, broadcast conversations. But for those of you who may have been um, under a rock last night, <laughs> Donald Trump was indicted by a Manhattan grand jury on more than 30 counts related to business fraud. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time here because I don't want to talk about Trump, you know, in an extensive way. But I do just want to give you an opportunity to socialize around your reactions. What's coming up for you? What do you predict? What are your thoughts? So the first thing that I would say, um, you mentioned in my bio, my book, The Presidential Principles. Uh, I wrote that book in 2018. And the reason why it's titled The Presidential Principles is because one of the things people don't know about my family is that my family has interacted with the last six presidents of the United States. I mean, literally, we have been involved um, in interacting with presidents and their administrations since really 1991. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've met President Trump. I've met President Obama. I've met President Clinton. Um, I've you know been high up in President Bush's administration. Of course, I've met President Biden. So uh, I'm a historian. My bachelor's degree is in history. And so I really do study the history of what makes great leaders great during their times. Mm -hmm. And where I am today after hearing this news, we, we've used the word unprecedented more mm -hmm. times than I can count uh, since Donald Trump entered the national lexicon of, of American politics. And a former president being indicted is unprecedented. And what it speaks to me is um, how far we have departed away from um, leadership who actually cares. And when I mean cares, they really give a damn. And that's that's the only way I can I can think of, of the words it, is that we've we've fallen to a place where uh, people are getting elected because they don't care about anything or anybody or how it makes people feel that they don't have a vision for. Uh, what a greater America looks like for all of us. And so I weep when when I when I read the headlines about the stuff that's going on, because, you know, for our children, I got an 18 year old daughter. Um, this is what she's going to remember most about leadership in her early careers. I mean, when I, you know, try to, you know, be more malleable to youthful generations. Right. But now my daughter is being raised in an era where her example of our national leader um, has been an embarrassment, you know, through our high school years. And now 
um, we're still trying to come back from that. And who knows where we would go. So for me, I, I just feel sad about it all. And uh, just wish there was so much other great things we could talk about on TV that our leaders are doing, because there are some great leaders, but they're few and far between because we are electing so many people who, who are only running for the sake of uh, power and control and not to be able to have influence and impact to make a difference uh, for people like us and our children and our children's children. That's, that's where I'll end it with that. No, Anton, you raise a really good point. I don't know if I've ever just sat down and really internalized because our, you know, my, my son and daughter are, you know, they're young adults. And so they also have been a part of this era where they have seen our, our leadership and, um, and so, yeah, I think that is something for us to be concerned about as parents. And so we have to be diligent and consider what can we do to balance that. And I know that whether it's been intentional or not, because leadership has always been a part of your foundation, right? Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. the way in which you have been so instrumental in helping to shape what leadership look like, what healthy and effective leadership can look like and should look like, I think has given you a little bit of edge up because, you know, your kids are seeing that, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though they may be seeing what's happening on the big stage, they're mm -hmm. also seeing what's happening right in their home, right in yeah. their communities because of the leadership work that I know that you're so um, invested in. Yes. So, yeah. It's, you know, I, I'll put it to you this way. Um, you know, this might be the most important takeaway to anybody who's listening or, or, or watching and joining us today is that, Whenever you're in any type of role, does, you don't have to be a leader by title. You could be a leader by influence. And, and so what you should understand about that is that everybody that you come in contact with, no matter who they are, they're asking you three questions when they come into your purview. Everybody's asking the same three questions. And guess what? None of us ever verbalize these three questions. They don't. But they are thinking about them and how you respond to these questions will determine the impact of your leadership. And here are the three questions. Question number one is, do you care about me? Mm -hmm. Question number two is, will you help me to be successful? Mm -hmm. And question number three is, can I trust you? Mm. And nobody wants to hear the words, oh, I care about you. Oh, I'm here to help you to be successful. Or you can trust me. We don't want to hear the words. The words are what we put in mission statements. The words are what we put on our websites. The words are what we say in speeches. The question is, what are your actions showing? Because mm -hmm. people want to see the answers to those questions in your actions. And so, and when I was in politics, and when I mean in politics, when I ran for public office mm -hmm. and I got elected to the legislature, the first African-American in history, first Democrat in 24 years in my district, is that I thought that every voter Black, white, old, young, Republican, Democrat, you know, it doesn't matter your background, your framework. I know you're asking me those three questions. Do I care about you? Will I help you to be successful? And can you trust me? Mm -hmm. And what I understood intently is that if I never answered the first two questions, then the third question is not even an option. You're not going to trust anybody who doesn't care about you. And so the lesson for all of us is no matter where we show up, when we show up, we need to demonstrate to the people around us in our lives that we actually care about them mm -hmm. and that our goal is to help them to be successful. And that if we do that repeatedly, show them that we care repeatedly, help them repeatedly, then over time we will build trust. 
but it only takes one time to show people you don't care about them or that you're not trying to help them to break and lose that trust. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel like we've not only fallen in politics that, you know, think about it. Think about it. Many of the leaders that you see on TV, if you ask the question, does that person on TV care about me? Will they do anything in public service to help me to be successful? And can I really trust them? And if we start to really unpack those three questions, we don't have enough leaders in public service to do that. But in business, we are, we're breaking it every day. Like I, I really do feel like people show up to work trying to do their best every day. And mm-hmm. they want to know, does my supervisor care about me? Mm-hmm. Does the CEO of this company care about me? Does the company actually care mm-hmm. about me? And are they going to help me to be successful? Because none of us yeah. want to be a failure. Nobody wants to be a failure, Absolutely. right? So I try to boil it down to how I lead, how I serve, how I empower people. And the legacy that I'm building is tied into how I answer those three questions for everybody that I encounter. I love that. And you do talk a lot about legacy. I want to make sure that we can capture this into the chat because it was so good. Um, Do you care about me? Are you willing to help me be successful? And uh, can I trust you? Yeah. That is that is that is really strong. And I love what you said about leadership is not just title or positionality. It is about influence. And I echo that, too, because it allows all of us to see the responsibility that we should own around helping to influence positivity. Right. Because we all can do that. And um, and so I, I love that you brought that to the conversation. I'm paying attention to the chat. And when we were talking a moment ago about how words matter, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Mikel said um, indicted, but Trump said he was indicated. Yeah, words matter. <laughs> um, and then Alfred, Alfred says, I'm worried about Trump's call for violence and normalizing it among his followers. Yeah, I have heard sentiments of that being a concern for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, we have to make sure that we are doing what we're, you know, doing today. We're acknowledging that that is that is something that's out there that's occurring and we need to be mindful of it. But how can we also drown out the negativity? So that's why I love what you're bringing to today's conversation. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about, um, you know, you mentioned in your bio and I actually shared this when I, I read your bio that you are the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership. So how does diversity and inclusion fit into that conversation? What's the intersection there? Oh, totally. So the, the, uh, I think the diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is embedded in being socially conscious. Like, so the, the yeah. concept is this, is that here's how I, how I break it down. If you, if you put 100% of people uh, in a room, people fall into um, three, really three or four categories. And, and I'll, I'll just give it to you this way is what I call the awareness axis axis, and the action axis. And so what do I mean? The longer you're in that room, the more awareness you have about things that are broken or unfair or that something is not right. So if you think about your company, where you work, if you're a brand new employee, you probably have no awareness to the unfairness or injustices that go on. I mean, you just got there. So you're excited about working, you're working with your team. But if you've been there for 30 years, You've seen every wart, every knot, every failure, every bad leader, every mistake in that company. So your awareness grows over time. But also what grows over time is your ability to take action on what you see that's broken. And so if you're a new hire, 
you don't have a whole lot of influence in order to be able to make change in the organization. Very true. I don't care what your role is. If you've been there 30 years, you have the ability to do something about it. You have the ability to influence. And so what mm-hmm. are the categories people fall in? Well, here's the bottom line. 50% of people are what I call living in oblivion. They have no awareness to what's broken in an organization. And therefore, they don't take any action. They have no ability to take any action because you can't fix what's wrong until you know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you right. got 35% of the people who are what I call suffering paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Which is yeah. they see things that are wrong or broken, but they still don't take any action because they do these mental gymnastics and say, you know, what can little old me do about the fact that we don't have a lot of women in leadership here? I'm just one person. Or right. it ain't my job to make sure that more women get in leadership. That's HR's job. They'll do right. it somebody else. Or they'll say something, well, you know, I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I don't, they'll, they'll say, I don't have anything to do anything about it. Right. So they see the problem and they have some ability to take action, but they literally are paralyzed by their analysis. And so yeah. you look at that, that's about 85% of people in the organization already. But then you got the 10%. These are the people who have the greatest awareness of what's wrong and the greatest ability to take action, but they literally do nothing because they have a mistaken belief that I benefit from things staying wrong or staying broken. So they not only do nothing, but they collude to make sure things stay the way they are. So from a diversity and equity and inclusion standpoint, if you know that people of color are not being included in leadership opportunities, you know, are you even aware of that? And if you're aware of it, what are you doing about it? And if you're doing nothing about it, are you a part of the 10% who's saying, you know what, well, if I help people of color get into leadership positions, then that means that's going to take an opportunity away from somebody who looks like me or somebody else in leadership. So they have all these mistaken beliefs. And that's the construct that we have ourselves stuck in is that you know either I'm living in oblivion, I'm suffering paralysis by analysis, or mm-hmm. I'm uh, objectively objectionable to any kind of change in that organization. Right. And what I spend my time doing is helping leaders to understand when it comes to a wide variety of issues, we all might be in the 50% at one point in time or another. So here's the example. When George Floyd was murdered mm-hmm. on May 25th, Okay, Mm -hmm. a lot of people that look like you and I knew Mm -hmm. for generations that police violence against black people was a real thing. And it had been happening for a long time. But about half of America, that was the first time that they noticed that there was injustice happening to black people at the hands of police. I mean, how many people were living in oblivion before George Floyd? Like I, I saw it with my own eyes with Rodney King in 1991 but some people were living in oblivion. But then other people who might've known that that injustice was real, but guess what? They didn't do anything about it. You know, I don't live in Minnesota. So what can I do about what happened to George Floyd? Well, I don't live in, in Missouri, so I can't do anything about Mike Brown. They don't recognize that all of us have some ability to do something about the problem. And then there were some people who were at the very top who said, you know what? Um, not only am I not gonna do anything about it, but those people deserve what they get because they didn't comply with the police. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the construct that people are in. And so I want people to not be in that 95%, 50, 35 and 10, but the 5% of people who are fully and consciously aware 
that the world evolves every day and it's inherently unfair and is that they have a fundamental responsibility to learn what they can to make it right, to raise their level of awareness and to use a word that is properly in the lexicon today about being woke. Uh, Erica Badu said it in an interview just two days ago that um, woke is, is, is really around consciousness. It's really around awareness. It's being aware of your surroundings, being aware of things that are different than how you have known them to be. It's being in tune, in touch with your body, with your community, with the people around you. And the more aware we become, the more we're able to fix what's wrong and to do some small thing. You, you can't solve every problem, but right. you can do something to make it right. You can do something. Yeah, you can do something. And that something can influence someone else. And then they then will, it's a domino effect, right? So we oh. cannot underestimate the value of doing something, even as small as it may seem to us. Um, I love that Mr. Shirley Scott states in the chat that uh, when we do nothing, we're part of the problem. Yeah, people don't realize that. I think they sense, well, if I just stay in my bubble and I'm quiet and I don't do anything, don't say anything, don't look anybody in the eyes, then maybe, you know, nothing will come my way. You've made a decision as well, right? You know, so there, there's certainly some criticism um, that that is about those who are sitting back and just expecting others to, um, to get engaged and trying to fix these problems. We all have a role to play. You know, Dr. King, I'll end with this one. Dr. King said in his speech or his letter from a Birmingham jail, yeah. uh, the worst is the silence of the good people. Like it's not the racist bull Connor who's whipping people and sicking dogs on people. That's silence the problem. The it's the silence of the good people is the biggest part of the problem. Yeah. And that takes courage. It takes choosing courage over comfort. It yes. takes being willing to, you know, to put yourself in perceived risk. And I'm not saying that it's easy and it's for everybody in every situation, but for those of us who do have the wherewithal to lean into that, think mm -hmm. about how, how beneficial it is for, for the greater, for the greater good, greater community. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I love those who are who have the emotional capital to be able to take on some of those risks and be, you know, socially conscious and to 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 challenge the status quo, to ask the tough questions, um, because we need all of us doing that. Mm -hmm. um, this is so good. Okay, yeah, so, so I'm going to be go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to be shifting in a little bit to take some questions and comments from the audience. I wanted to give you a heads up. Um, the way that yeah. you can let me know that you're willing to um, be part of our conversation is use the raise hand feature if you're part of the um, the Zoom community. And I will um, give you a chance to unmute yourself and share, and I will spotlight you so that everyone can um, have a, a visual as you're sharing. If you desire to send your questions or commentary through the chat, that's that's fine and welcomed as well. We'll be paying attention there, and we will certainly bring those conversations in. If you're on LinkedIn Live, go to the comments. Those questions are being monitored. They will be brought over into this space. And so... Um, I want to ask another question to give people time to think about perhaps what they want to contribute. I want to talk about your book. So you gifted me with a copy of your book, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, friend. I do appreciate that. And it's called Just Lead. And yes. I'm saying your book. I should say your new book because, yes. yeah, you have lots of books. Okay. Yes. Lots of books. Yes. Um, but Just Lead, tell us about it. What inspired it? Why yes. is this book important specifically now? Yes. So um, Just Lead is my third book, and I'm so excited about this. And I, I really felt the need to write this because of the conversations that I've been having. Like, I'm a prolific keynote speaker uh, speaking across the country and always in the back of the room when I when I finish a keynote and I share some stories about 
injustice that people experience in the workplace or unfairness that they experience, some of it in a DEI lens, and sometimes it's just how people get mistreated at work. Someone always comes up and says, Anton, um, I don't know what to do. I, 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 I'm struggling in my workplace, or uh, I don't have a leader who listens, or I really want to be inclusive. I really want to be that leader who who uh, mentors young professionals and mentors women in the workplace, but I don't know what to do. Can you give me some framework of what to do? And my answer is just lead. And the context is, is that people say, well, Anton, I don't need an esoteric research piece. And I said, okay, well, guess what? I'm not going to give you an esoteric research piece. I'm going to give you a short, simple book that's small enough that it can fit in your purse or in your jacket pocket. And it is tiny. I love the size of it. It's tiny and it's 44 actions that you can do right now to break down barriers, boost your retention and build a world-class culture. And you can take them out of order or in order, but these are things that you can do every day to help your team to be better, to be a better leader. And so don't wait for someone to, to, to train you or teach you or to, to give you some esoteric research, just lead. And that really just means have a conversation with the people that you care about. Answer those three questions in real time every day. And so mm-hmm. here's the example in the book that I really do lay out is this, is that if you want to answer that first question, do you care about me? Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to care about people that you don't know. That's true. I tell you as a leader, here's some questions that you can ask the people on your team so you can get to know who they are. And when I mean no, not the superficial stuff that we talk about at work, but what's their, what's the favorite book that they've ever read in their life? Like, yeah. where did they grow up? Hey, um, you know, what's the best part about their job? What is one thing you can do to make their job easier and better? You know, why do they choose to work here? Because all of us have a choice. We can go work. Like ask those kinds of questions and then really learn who that person is. And your job as a leader is to make them feel valued, feel respected, to feel included, to feel visible, and to show them that you care about them and then Mm -hmm. help them to be successful. And so the book Just Lead is a simple framework for people to do that. You can get it on Amazon. You can go to antongun.com slash just lead and get a copy there. But my goal is to give people a tool and a resource that they can use in real time to break down the barriers between us and to, and to keep people at work. Because the other phenomenon that I wrote about in the book or talked about in the book is that, you know, 80 million people have quit a job since 2021, 80 million people. And last year in 2022, it was like 55 million people who quit wow. a job. You know why? Because people are sick and tired of working at places where people don't care about them where they're not helping them to be successful and they have little trust in their mm-hmm. leaders and the organizations. Mm-hmm. So I want you to keep your top talent. If you got a great team, you don't want to lose your team, right? So learn team, yeah. how to just lead. And that's, that's what the book is about. I love it. And I love the practicality of it with the simple kind of applications and steps and nuggets. And it is something you can put in your pocket. You can put in your bag. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a great tool. We have shared into the um, the chat a link for people who are interested in getting that book. I do highly recommend it. Um, you've also referenced a couple other resources today, like the Times article. We did place that in the chat. So I hope you all pay attention to all of these resources that we are um, placing into the chat for your benefit. 
Um, and Natasha, I see that your hand was raised and then you lowered it. So I'm going to give you time to think about whether or not that question is still coming up for you. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to go to Alfred's question that's placed into the chat. And Alfred is asking this. What is your advice for individuals to lead across generations? And then he adds, could you speak to knowing when to follow or support someone in the moment when their expertise is needed? So I think there's probably two separate questions, but maybe they could find a way of being related. Yeah so, the, yeah, so the first one I would say um, to lead across generations, it's important to understand the generations. Again, in the book, Just Lead, I, I give a basic framework to ask people very um, insightful and informative questions. I mean, like you got to become a journalist at work sometimes. And uh, if you're going to imagine you're going to write a profile piece on someone for, um, you know, Glamour magazine or you pick the magazine, you're going to write a piece on them. Right. So you have to understand who they are and their perspective, how they see the world and where they come from. So what I encourage people to do, all leaders to do, if you want to understand the generations, you got to understand what is important to those generations. And as right. a Gen Xer, as a hip hopper through and through, like hip hop is a cornerstone to me. And I'm talking classic hip hop, like Run DMC, Eric B and Rakim, classic hip hop. So if you don't understand that about me, and you come into the office talking about Ingeberg Humperdinck, you're going to lose me, okay? <laughs> but I've worked with some people who are, are, are baby boomers who Ingeberg Humperdinck is their favorite artist of all time. So what did I do? I went home and I listened to a whole album of Ingeberg Humperdinck and, and found out what his 10 greatest hits are. And so it became a piece of the conversation in the workplace. And if I'm talking to my daughter, who's 18, who's a Gen Z in the workplace, and, you know, she's on a Lil Yachty, but then I need to understand what Lil Yachty is talking about. <laughs> and so you got to find those things that are important to the generations. And so the second question, I would say, um, when when to follow someone's leadership is when they're answering those three questions for you. Like, I yeah. mean, that's the bottom line. It, it, it really is simple as that. If a leader cares about you, if you know that and can see that they're helping you to be successful and you trust that leader, that's who you follow. And the leader who you don't trust, the leader who isn't caring about you, the leader uh, who isn't helping you to be successful, then you might not want to follow that direction because it's not going to be in your best interest. Yeah. Back to those three points. And again, we did um, socialize that into the chat. So care, um, can I be successful? And can I trust you? And so um, I'm glad you mentioned hip hop. We're going to get there because yeah. you and I were on a panel together. And I remember uh, that's when I really realized that hip hop was so much a part of who you are mm -hmm. and your, your coming out music to the stage was hip hop. And anyway, so we're going to come back to that. But Natasha um, had a question. And so, Natasha, I do want to um, get you into our conversation now. Um, so feel free to unmute yourself and to share. Good morning, and thank you so much again, um, Dr. Anita, for uh, Dr. Anika, for the space. Um, Anton, thank you so much for all of the advice and gems that you have been dropping. Um, I feel ready to lead already, <laughs> or lead differently. <laughs> but okay, so my question is this, um, and it goes to the fifty percent that you mentioned. I found that in my experience of leading. A lot of people who fall into that category that have been with organizations for years, it's not, I, I guess, one of the behaviors that is adopted there is we see how others have been treated when they attempt to create that meaningful change or to lead differently um, as you have been um, leading us today. And so as a result of having seen how others have been treated, 
um, they decide to take a back seat because they do not want to put that target on their back. Mm -hmm. And in other instances, it might lead to something that a lot of us um, Black people and people of color in the workplace have experienced where there is a shadow support where it's not a um, public or forward-facing uh, um, sponsorship, mentorship, but it's more so one of those, let me pull you in the room. And mm -hmm. so what at, how, re, how do you reconcile that reality in terms of speaking to the person that's just like, is it worth it? Is mm -hmm. it worth um, jeopardizing my coins by standing up for what's right, having seen how others have been treated in the past? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mm -hmm. really appreciate you asking it. Um, I, I'm going to share a little bit. It's not not public at all, but I've, um, I've just come back out of the field. I, I've been doing a national research study on injustice in the workplace. And literally, um, to that point of the reason why people don't get involved and that is really the bystander effect that you you might see someone else um, catching hell at work uh, unfairly and unjustly and why why do people not take action why do they sit on the sidelines and you're speaking right to it some people are afraid because I, I saw what happened to Bob when he spoke up in 1991 or mm. saw what happened to Mary last year, she's not here anymore. Now, what I say to people about that is, is that at some point, you have to take action. If you want things to get better, there will never get better unless you have enough people uh, taking action. And sometimes it becomes a tipping point. Sometimes like Malcolm Gladwell's book, which is, there might be nine other people who tried it and it was not successful. And if you sit on the sidelines and don't take action, the 10th person might be the person that becomes a catalyst for change. So I encourage people to understand that there's a time and a place for everything. And this is where I really want people to focus in on analyzing your environment and having some massive situational awareness around what's going on. Because, you know, one of my favorite movies is Lean On Me. And there's a mm -hmm. character in the movie, his name is Mr. Donnell, who's a teacher who got really upset at Principal Joe Clark and cursed him out and was like flipping over a desk like he was about to fight him. I'm never telling you to flip over a desk and speak out when you see injustice in that way. But I am telling you to understand how you can raise your voice to those issues. Sometimes it might just be the acknowledgement of what I saw was wrong. Because you know, there's yeah. people who do wrong every day and, and they really do believe that they're invisible, that they can do it and nobody actually sees it. And so without bringing it to the attention to say, you know what, that wasn't right. Or, yo, that doesn't, that's not ethical. Or that's, you know, you got to be able to raise it in the right way. So my best answer to you is to really have full situational awareness. And, and if you got coins, what's the point of having coins if you never use it, right? And so my context is being judicious with that and finding allies in the workplace who can also help um, elevate the issue so you're not out there on an island. But I will tell you, as someone um, who has been courageous in a lot of work environments, I've been in, on an island a lot. And it doesn't necessarily feel comfortable all the time, but sometimes it has to be someone to make that change. Just imagine if Rosa Parks was the person who said, you know what, I I'm just going to go to the back today. You know, mm -hmm. so we all have to find 
those times in our life to, to stand up, to get up, to move, to be the catalyst for the change. And guess what? It's not a solo act. If you mm-hmm. do your, your, your due diligence, your development, you're going to figure out who your allies are, the people who normally would put you to the side and talk to you outside of the office. But you just, you got to, you can't, you can't be afraid of it. What, 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 what courage is, and Nika, you said this earlier about courage. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has courage, but would you have to understand that courage is not fearlessness. Right. Courage is not fearlessness. Courage is being afraid, but doing it anyway. anyway. Because mm-hmm. you can't, you can't live with yourself long-term for not doing anything. And I, I believe that, again, there's something you can do. So it may not be going to the New York Times and talking about how bad your boss is. It may not be blasting an email company-wide to the organization, but it might be having a conversation with your boss's peer about the negative experience that you're having. And, and again, being clear about the policies in your workplace around retaliation and that if you raise something and somebody retaliates against you, then know what your recourse is and who is in your back pocket. And if you need a good employment lawyer, I can give you three or four of them because I know three or four of them and they've helped people who've been in those situations who've been retaliated in. So again, you got to know the landscape, but most importantly, you just got to show a little courage uh, at the right time. I so love that, Anton. Thank you so much, Natasha, for your um, very great question. It really, I'm sure, resonated with so many in this audience, particularly as I think about what's showing up into the chat. Um, your camera wasn't on, so I did respect that. And I didn't spotlight you, but I'm just so grateful that you still were willing to choose courage and to ask your question. Um, I love what you said about as influencers, it doesn't always mean that we have to roar, right? And when you mentioned Rosa Parks, what I think about is how she sat there and kind of quietly said, no, I'm not moving. No, I'm not moving, right? And so it's still was incredibly impactful. So we do have to realize that activism, it it may, to some of us, it has a certain look about it, but that's not the only look. Activism can look so many different ways. It could be the quiet voice at the end of the day that's just being expressive about what your experience is, as you brought up. Um, And so I, I, I love that that is coming to this conversation. Um, I want to highlight that Linroy has amplified resource in the chat that may be of value to this community, but it's Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm not familiar with this, but I'm definitely taking note of it, Linroy, so thank you. How little things can make a big difference, and that's what we're talking about. Collectively, all of our little seeds, we can really manifest something amazing, so do not despise some of those small steps and action items. Okay, so we're getting close to the end of the time. I want to talk about hip hop just really quickly because I also want to get to hip hop and SEC really quickly. So I'm gonna try to see if we can do this. Sure. So hip hop is really important to you. Tell us why, and tell us what can hip hop, you know, teach us about entrepreneurship or leadership in general. Yeah. So uh, this year is a very special year uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, it's my 50th birthday. I turned 50 this year, and it's also the 50th anniversary of hip hop music and culture. And nice. as a as a hip hop kid growing up in Virginia, I, I will when I say hip hop kid, I've been a break dancer, I've been a rapper, um, I used to play records and DJ at my parents' house party. I mean, I I'm not a cut creator, you know, Jazzy Jeff kind of DJ, but I did play music and keep the party moving, and I've done that. So hip hop has always been a, a a through line through my experiences as a leader, and I and I say this uh, in all sincerity that if it wasn't for hip hop. I wouldn't be on this podcast right now. If if it wasn't for hip hop, I wouldn't be doing the things that I do uh, as a leader and as an entrepreneur. 
because I, you know, I made a few mistakes in my life and it was the music and the culture that set me on a path, namely um, the greatest album of all time, Public Enemies, It Takes a Nations of Millions to Hold Us mm -hmm. Back. Uh, Chuck D wrote the foreword to my first book, The Audacity of Leadership, where I talked about the words that his lyrics, his lyrics and the words that mm -hmm. he spoke made me want to become a leader because in, it boils down to an interview that he did in 1990. And the reporter asked Chuck D, okay, your second album is Fear of a Black Planet. Is your goal to go platinum with this album the way you did with It Takes a Nations of Millions? And Chuck D's response was, no, I don't want to go platinum. My goal for this album was to create 5,000 new leaders in the Black community. Ah. And when I, when I read that in the interview, I said, I want to become one of those leaders. Mm. So the reason why I chose the path to be a leader in my life and my career was because of Chuck D in Public Enemy. And so hip hop is everything to me, but it also is one of the greatest entrepreneurial forces on the planet. I mean, you know, think about black kids in the Bronx, New York, black and Latino kids in the Bronx, New York, who were underfunded schools, living in poverty, thrown away by society, who literally didn't have, the reason why Dougie Fresh became the greatest beatboxer on the planet is because at his high school, they took away the music program and they didn't have any instruments. So he had to oh. use his mouth as an instrument. And because mm. of that, he created a career path for himself that is still paying him dividends to this day. And so you can't get any more entrepreneurial than taking nothing and turning it into something creating something that everybody else threw away, your parents' old records and your parents' old record player, that you take that old music and you reinvent it and make it new. And so my job as a leader and as an entrepreneur is to always reinvent, to figure out what I can take that people knew in the past that may not be relevant today and put my own remix on it, to remix it, to remake it, to sample it, to transform it into a new product or service that has value. And so the whole point is we all leadership is nothing new under the sun. Like there's, there's oh. 200,000 leadership books in the world. There's 200,000 leadership speakers in the world. But my main point is, is to be a leader and to share a message that has my through line, that has my story and my unique experience that will resonate with people because I come from a generation that, that hasn't spent a lot of time in the leadership space. I mean, John Maxwell is, you know, 80 plus years old, greatest leadership guru. So a lot of people never heard of John Maxwell, but they may hear of Anton Gunn. And so hip hop has given me that inspiration, that motivation, and that aspiration. And most importantly, if you come to a keynote speech of Anton Gunn, if you bring me to your company or your conference as a keynote speaker, you're going to get some classic hip hop and you're going to get a show and a performance because I am a performer. And that that's that's the way I got to leave it. Yeah. If, if you want an outstanding speaker, I, I tell you, Anton should definitely be on your list. And, and yes, I, I know all about that. You are amazing when you show up on that stage, just the energy that you bring and that you help spark in the audience members. Not only that, the substantive nature of the content that you share is just on par. And so... I am so grateful that we had a chance to hear a little bit from you today. We have to invite you back because there's so much more I would love for um, for you to share. I did not know that about Dougie Fresh, by the way. So did y'all know that? I'm learning something about Dougie Fresh. But we have maybe 60 seconds left. Yeah. And I want to give you the final words. I, I would love if you can take some time to just share briefly about your SEC experience because you went from being an offensive lineman to yeah. state legislator. 
Yeah. So football to politics. And then yeah. if there's something else that you want to leave this audience with that you feel like would really be of benefit, we want to give you that chance to do so. Very good. So uh, playing college football, I learned some of the greatest lessons on leadership, as particularly as an offensive lineman, which is don't worry about taking credit because the only time you hear an offensive lineman's name is when they make a mistake, but the quarterback and the wide receivers will get all of the credit from scoring the touchdowns. That's the first lesson. Lesson number two is that you can't work alone and be successful. As an mm -hmm. offensive lineman, you got to work in a group of five together and be on the same page if you want to be successful. And number three, don't be afraid to do the dirty work, which is you got to put your hand down in the trenches and do the stuff that nobody wants to do. And you might get beat up a little bit for it. But at the end of the day, if you do your job well, the team will win. That's the lessons that I take into politics and I take into everything that I'm doing. And so for everybody who wants great value and really want to learn more from me, I'm going to give you a free resource for your audience. This is for everybody. This is what I call my Just Lead Toolkit. If you go to antongun.com slash toolkit and give me an email address, I'm going to send you the 10 qualities of a world-class leader that I curated from Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, and Malcolm X. I'm going to give you that resource. And I'm going to share with you the nine pivotal points that I share in my keynote presentations and how you can become a great leader by applying those pivotal points. So again, antongun.com slash toolkit. Give me an email address. I'll send you that. And then I got a lot more free resources that I'll share with you. And if you don't want to be on my email list, you can feel free to unsubscribe after you get the toolkit. But I'm telling you, I teach leaders every day and I'd be happy to give you those resources. You've dropped so many nuggets today. That resource is placed into the chat. I hope that you all will take advantage of that offering. If this has really been a value to you, I want you to share this information out. Certainly um, allow people to know what they missed and that they can catch the replay. Um, and also if they desire to catch this in a podcast capacity, we will be extracting the audio, making it available in that regard. I wish I had some hip hop music to take us out on, but I don't. But anyway, my friend, I so appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all of you who took the time Time to be with us this hour. And um, not only those who are live in our podcast um, virtual community here, but also those who joined us via LinkedIn Live. Have a safe and wonderful weekend. Thanks so much.